Good afternoon. It is April 18th. And this is episode 6B of the Bad Dog Book Club. I'm Skip Ruddertail, your otter editor. And I'm Toonses, the driving cat, the cat that could drive a car if I had insurance. And I'm Jay Moose, today's uh, guest podcaster. And we're super excited. This is our first uh, guest podcaster, our first guest commentator with us. So thank you for coming, Jay. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I've been a fan since episode one. Yeah, we met at the uh, Kyle Gold book signing. Just, yeah. What was that, just a couple weeks ago? Yeah, it was like three weeks ago. And, yeah, yeah, want to tell us Want to tell us a bit more about what happened there? I mean, you, well, you, you already were, told us. I, uh, <laughs> I didn't get a chance to actually talk right. to Kyle Gold, though. Oh, yeah. what, did, what did you ask Kyle Gold? I, I, I felt a little bit too shy. I, you know how I feel about these things. Well, I, 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 so I had a bunch of questions that were like a little too trite to to post about on his blog, like he's got a line at the end of, um, of out of position and it's, it's the one where dev comes onto the field after rumors are circulating that he's gay. And you know, he, he's out on the football field and the crowd is immensely hostile and they, you know, and everyone's booing him. And there's a line in there that says, it was like, it was asshole day at a veteran's field. Uh-huh. And I'm an Eagles fan, and the Eagles for a long time, yes. you know, yeah, they have a they somewhat Santa well. Claus, right? Veterans Field is infamous. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's yeah, Veteran Stadium where they used to play is now demolished, but you know that they sort of gained a reputation as as you know they booed Santa Claus when Michael Irvin broke you know broke his neck on the field. They're cheering and cheering. <laughs> so as hard as the astronauts, they popularized. So, so wait, they're. Oh, yeah. So I just I just had to know I'm like this there's no way this is an accident and the, I asked him and he kind of like yeah you know it was, I put it there intentionally. <laughs> By the way, there was a uh, Brazilian volleyball player because uh, volleyball is very popular um, down in Brazil. Who this was over the course of the last week I guess this all happened um, where he was playing an away game and the fans in the stadium started calling him basically the Brazilian equivalent of fag and chanting it. And oh, wow. he, two days later, like came out in a conference and said, yes, I'm gay. Um, they said the other players wore pink practice jerseys. To support for, him or to, to mess with him? him? To support him the That's rest of the week. And then at the next home game, all the crowd had, the insta- their, their foam bats were all pink with his name on them. And That's really they supportive. cheered for him when he came out. That's so nice. I thought, there you, there you go. There's a <laughs> volleyball making a and solid bid for And it totally reminded sport. me of out of position. So there you go. So we're reading this week uh, "Stasis" by Aflor Alto, and Tune says you picked that out for us. So yes. why don't you tell us uh, why you picked this one? Well, I got a, a this submission along with a few others. I think about a month or a little bit earlier ago from Aflor. He was uh, really enthusiastic about, you know, having uh, this work, which is kind of a work in progress, going along different stages, you know, working on, like, a, a writer always does, t- tending to them like a mama bird, basically. And uh, I liked it. I just, it, it hit a personal chord with me. Uh, just one of those things that, like, sometimes a story just connects with you in a certain way, and you feel a little bit uncomfortable even trying to discuss the basics, but I'll try to do that here. Uh so, I wanted to mention one thing, though. Uh, just Alfor pointed out to us that since it was a work in progress, we were getting different versions along the line. We did, there's a small hiccup where the version we read on our audiobook is not the exact same version we 
posted in the text version. Some minor language differences. We'll try to mop that up, but we wanted to just point that out real quick and. The, the story is the same, though, whether yeah. you read it or listened to Alex's wonderful recording of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you'll be able to follow along with our discussion just fine. Mm-hmm. Primarily what the interest was, and what I actually what thought might be fun to get our conversation uh, kicked off today, was uh, Alfloor was writing with Eng- in English as a second language, I believe he mentioned at one point. So he was always going back and messing with the diction and the uh, word choice to make it sound more proper, I guess, in his mind. And... Do you, what what's what kind of challenges do you think arise from trying to write in a in a non-native language? Well, for one thing, you don't know any of the idioms or the the inflection. The basically, you know, the, the kind of thing that would come naturally to a writer in his native language, sort of the banter. You know, you probably have to struggle with that a lot more. Just kind of the, the daily speak, basically. Yeah. Well, and, and often that's. You know, in terms of word choice, you know, there are a lot of ways, especially in English, which has more words than any other language by far. Uh, you know, word choice is so important. That's often how one separates, you know, good fiction from the best fiction is, you know, how the how the prose is structured, you know, how the mm-hmm. what are the words chosen, how the how the sentences and paragraphs are constructed. Yes. And, you know, right, trying to so you don't only have to master English, you have to master as you said, all these idioms and phrases and yes. grammatical constructions and which word, you know, is the best meaning in this particular context. And so it's extremely difficult. Uh, so a major um, I don't here, speak, this is a major well, This is a very well-written story. Yes, it is, absolutely. And I don't speak another language. I speak some Spanish. I don't speak well enough at all to write in it. So I don't have... I can't put myself in his perspective. But it's, you know, good enough that I wouldn't... You know, if somebody gave me this sight unseen without knowing that, I wouldn't pick it out as being written by a non-native native English speaker. So... No, if, if uh, what I what I mentioned to you earlier was that if you notice the name of the computer Phobos, it's it literally means fear, and and uh, that's what the story's and, about. And you, yeah, and you, you, you know, as a native English speaker, you didn't you didn't pick up on that. That was something no. that. <laughs> so what's funny is oftentimes the, the actual like formal education in English that non-native speakers get gives them a, a much more structured understanding of the language than people who just pick it up from living here. Yep. It's really it's rather surprising sometimes. Well, and I know his editor is American, I believe, for this story because I've talked with him. Oh. Um, so it helped. That's that's one of the other tricks is you know get an editor who is a native speaker of the language you're writing in, and they can sit there and give you a couple points. You know, and I've I've actually read stories for non-native English speakers where I said. You know that's okay, but people really haven't used this word since the 1920s. You know, and th- th- I have run into cases like that where it's like it is legitimate to use this word. Nobody would use it in normal conversations. So you, you know, if you have an editor who's a native speaker, whatever language you're going to, do, you, that's you have a, big a particular hit. word in mind. I'm curious. I don't even. I, I try to remember gig. what it was, but it, I mean, it was something you know particularly archaic. You know, that was technically correct. And you could look it up in the OED, but it would be like the fourth, you know, definition down. Southern Democrat. Like, yeah, <laughs> there, you <go. laughs> there you go. Southern Democrat. That's what he was referring to. Yeah, yes. Um. <laughs> Before the realignments. Oh, how painful. So, um, for, first question, I guess, is what did you think of the ending? Well, what I like about the ending is that it, it kind of cuts off right at the pivotal moment where you realize it's being... Uh, given this decision to make, 
And it's weird because I kind of feel like it gives him a private space to make this decision in where we'll never know exactly what he decides. Yeah, and just, to, just to refresh, um, you know, at, at the end of the story, he's kind of left with you know, three decisions, right? He can uh, live, but he has killing to kill his brother, his brother to do so. Um, he can grow old and probably crazy. And no, he doesn't get to grow old. He was, he was given, you know, he was given the option of starvation or dehydration. Right. So you can grow very I, old while you're starving. I'm sure. Of it. Dehydration, <laughs> dehydration is a couple weeks. And or and you go crazy while you're doing it too. Right. Or he could take a dose of neurotoxin and die instantly. And those are the choices he's presented with at the end. Let's not forget Dark Horse, fourth candidate, go crazy and take out as much as you possibly can. <laughs> That's true, like blow up the shit blow the and kill off. everyone else. Okay, here's yeah. my argument. You kill the first guy, people come out, they know you did it. You kill 15 people, I mean, like, at least then there's like a little bit of watered down, like, diluted, like, responsibility, so no one's even going to know it was you. And as, as long as we're completely throwing out the rules of how computers work, just make it look like a computer accident. Yeah, I mean, that's that too. I mean, I'm just saying, there's still there's still time to pin this on somebody else. <laughs> so, so what, what I had mentioned before we had the, the hiccup with the recording was that the ending of this story reminds me of a, of a play by the... There's a, there's a British Nobel laureate, um, Harold Pinter, and he wrote a story called The Dumbwaiter about a couple of hitmen in a room. You know, and the, the parallels are like, this story has two protagonists, Alan and the computer, and, you know, the, the dumbwaiter has two protagonists as the hitmen, and, you know, nobody else appears. And, the, and they're waiting in a room, given instructions through this dumbwaiter that's sending them down notes, and it turns out that the hitmen are there because one guy's job is to kill the other. And the play ends with that one guy pointing a gun at the other's head, and the curtain comes down. And so you never really know how it ends. And that I think that at the ending of that kind of parallels the, the this particular story. Do these anticlimactic endings ever get on your nerves a little bit? Because I think, for one thing, it works splendidly here. I already said that, but some people it will really... It'll really frustrate them. I, the lack of closure I, I, can get really annoying at I, times. I think it depends on the kind of person. It's like I said to my anthropology students, I say, you know, if you like concrete answers, if you like the truth, this is not the discipline for you to be in. <laughs> no. You know, and I think, you know, fiction and movies can be like that, too. If you want you know, the truth, find you like, If you like everything wrapped up, yeah, and there are people who like that. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it worked and partially because you're really, really not sure what he's going to do. I mean, there's kind of what he should do. Um, and you know what you hope he does. Um, but you know, we have seen, um, you know, him, you know, he has already accidentally killed a person and accidentally then, is, I mean, maybe a value judgment there. He, I, he may have been very consciously sacrificing There was, there was no, no, there was no motive. There was no intent there. It was complete accident. He was trying to get somebody to help him. That's why he did it. He wasn't trying to kill them. That's true. Then after he killed them, though, however, he immediately said, well, you know... So, I, well, hey, you know, if you've, you, you, now that the eggs are broken, might as well make an omelet. I guess, yeah, exactly. The, you know, the, and, and who cares about this guy can use his pod. And part of that is just kind of rationalization, I think, in the heat of the moment. And how do you mentally cope with having accidentally killed a person mm-hmm. when you're 17 or whatever this kid is? But... Um, yeah, you know, there's kind of this, you know, has has he already crossed a bridge? And, you know, will he decide, I can just keep going? Um, and that that's, that's the I doubt there, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote down one particular line as he's, as he's kind of uh, contemplating, you know, Mr. Ishido, the, uh, the otter who just died horribly in front of him. 
and the the quote is, "It doesn't matter anyway. All that matters is that I get to live. Who cares about that guy? Who's going to miss him?" Yeah, and there's and, a certain disconnect here between he's not even recognized that he already has consequences on the other side. These people are not going to make it any more than he is. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, sort I don't think he'd be, you know, obviously guilty of manslaughter if he survived. But if he goes and kills his brother, and then it wouldn't, then it'd be murder, I guess. So far, he's only done manslaughter. Right. If he did anything else, it'd be murder because he knows the consequences. Well, that that, that particular line is kind of like a, a testament to his ability to to, to justify or to self rationalize. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I know you mentioned this reminded you of the, the Pinter play. I was reminded. Of, I think we were all three were reminded of several different kind of mm-hmm. plays and movies and mm-hmm. books mm-hmm. Uh, as we read this. So one, of course, that came immediately to mind, like all throughout, was two thousand one, the Kubrick film, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and right, Phobos. I mean, how can you not, you know, see Hal as Phobos and this is red eye sitting <laughs> here, you know, basically, I'm sorry, Alan, I can't let you do that. <laughs> and he comes really close to that line at one point. I mean, and Alan's reprogramming him. I really liked how Alex Vance did that voice in the podcast. Yeah, like I don't know, I would did he like install a thing in his throat or what did he do? <laughs> It's like, well, years of research. I'm a method actor. I got throat cancer, and then <laughs> yeah. So now he has some sci-fi. But yeah, that, that was really that good, was, Alex. That was really cool. You, you, should, you should find. Voice. You should find very out. impressive. You should find out. Like, put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out. Um, yeah, I think I, I think he did a filter. I think he recorded his voice normally, and then applied a filter uh, on his computer. But I'll find out how exactly he did that. that if I woke cool. up on, a, on like a spaceship and the computer came on, it was in Alex Vance's voice, <laughs> I would be terrified. I do not know what horrible things I would be asked to do. <laughs> like, I couldn't, when we were... When now, was, take them off slowly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, where's the silence? So, when, when, I was, when I was first listening to this, I was, you know, they're getting ready to put him to sleep, and I'm like, okay, so... Is this going to be a? St- I, I knew it immediately. It was one of two things will happen: either yeah. something horrible is going to go wrong, and you could kind of get the foreshadowing for that, or everything's going to be all right, and then something else is going to happen on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I was joking with you that uh, that I felt this was kind of like a you know if you want to if you want to take it in like kind of a joking fashion, it's like a, a morality tale. Mm-hmm. You know the the danger of wanderlust and why you should never leave home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of those cards in a scruples game. Hmm? One of those cards in a scruples game. Yeah. Do you kill your younger brother to survive? Take out as many others as you possibly can, <laughs> or kindly take out the target. Take the target until. Yeah. That's there's a good question. You know, this is obviously. I mean, I loved it because I'm I'm a big sci-fi fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as, as Toons is now, he Toons gets my Asimov's issues when I'm done with them now. Yeah. By the way, and he made me watch Star Wars. He made me. You never seen Star, Star Wars. Can you believe that me. until two weeks ago after we recorded. Our I don't last know why that's so unbelievable. He had never seen it, and we sat down. We fed him dinner. And we made him, and you enjoyed it. Yes. Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah, we started with time. a new hope. Of course, we're not even counting. Just, the, just gonna pretend three the three, those three never happened. Those never happened. I did see. I did see two of the first three. Yeah, see, that's why three. he never seen the original one. Because he's like, well, these suck. So. They did. Yeah, they did suck, and that is why I didn't see the new ones. <laughs> um, the old, you ones. know. So I love sci-fi, and this is kind of this. It reminds me of kind of these classic, like fifties, you know, hard sci-fi stories. I mean, because they're you know spaceship and. Kind of trapped. It's it's a little bit of a ship in a bottle story. And when the United States so, at its peak of its exploratory yeah, zeal, but it's these fears of what happens to um, people who are alone in space too. Like there's that classic uh, Twilight Zone episode, um, the Last Man on Earth the with Burgess Meredith. 
where he's yeah. like, at least now I have time to, to read all these books. Well, and, and I wasn't thinking of that one. I was thinking of one who the guy's actually, they're testing for an astronaut program. And there's this guy wandering around a, a village in, like, the Midwest, and nobody's there, and he's all alone. And it's, where did they go? And it ends with him, like, leaning against the lamppost, pressing the button to turn on the crossing gate, you know, so you can walk across and get the little person lit up, you know, when you walk across the street corner. And it turns out that he is pressing this emergency release button in this little self-contained habitat where NASA was testing how long could a single person be in space completely isolated without going sane, insane. And the whole episode, you realize to this point, was a hallucination on his part as his brain tried to cope with being absolutely oh, alone. Wow. Yeah. So it reminded me, there you go, another another thing that's reminded oh, me. Oh, the NASA this. thing, all of it turns out to be an illusion? Yeah. No, I mean, he was actually an astronaut in training, but the whole village that he'd spent the entire episode in wandering around trying to find out where everybody was, that was all in his mind. Oh. Um, and trying to cope with this being utterly alone. And so this there's is a, kind there's of what's story now, now that you mentioned, there's another one called uh, I Shot an Arrow. It's about mm-hmm. these... You know the episode I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. It's about the three the three guys who go up in the capsule and they crash on in some, some alien desert planet. Yes. And uh, basically the... Uh, the one guy kills the other two to take their water because they're running out. But you know, the but then the, meanwhile, the, the, another guy comes back and he draws like a little T in the ground. You know, before he expo- you know dies. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? And so the, the bad guy, you know, he follows along. And you know, just as he's just about to die of dehydration, he looks up and he sees a telephone pole. Yeah, <laughs> they they, land, they crash landed like the you know in the desert in, the in desert. Arizona or in like the Midwest and oh wow, and they never that's left actually Earth. a really similar story to this because it's it's sort of one of these you know what do you do with your fellow people in these situations? Don't you think sci-fi always focuses on these weird kind of morality tales mm-hmm. or these plays? I think of... the best sci-fi often does. It's like the best episodes of Star Trek. You know, are often the kind of exploring morality issues. And so I, it was very classic sci-fi for me in that sense, I was, which I really appreciate. As a sci-fi fan, I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I was very happy with this. Very, I, I mean, I classify it as pure classic sci-fi right here. And the only way you could say it isn't hard sci-fi, I think, is is you know maybe you know they're animal people, but that we're, it, we're obviously not counting a that. Dose of fantasy, our, just a dose of yeah. fantasy into it. Um, and there's no explanation there, but I don't know if there needs to be. Is it a horror story, though, too? And what's the difference? And could you classify it, or should you try to classify oh, it, it as it sci-fi be, or horror? It could be classified as horror. I mean, um, you had mentioned earlier that it's kind of like uh, The Shining, mm-hmm. that that it has a lot of resemblances to that, you know, uh, in that it's it's about isolation, and somebody ends up you know, having to weigh, you know, basically going... In The Shining, you know, it's, it's the caretaker he's brought in, and he's surrounded by all these ghosts, which... You know, are the the people in in um, sleep mm-hmm. and the, in the hypersleep, and now uh, and he's having to cope with isolation. Yeah. And if you want a better horror, just read the paragraph where the assistant gets locked out of the pod or gets knocked out of the pod. Yes. Mr. Ashimoto. Oh my god, I was cringing. That oh. was yeah. That was a very. I mean, that was really graphic. And I, when, when I heard that, it was like, oof. Yeah, that was very visceral, and and definitely the kind of hardest thing I think we've read so far. Um, on the book club, yeah, in terms for, of graphicness. For me, it's uh, weird. Like the, the the most difficult thing to actually sit through and read for some mm-hmm. reason is just a a graphic description of pain or violence for whatever. Like mm-hmm. I can read any kind of horrible description of of uh, some crazy situation somebody is in or or, or something like that, but 
like a bone breaking at all. Yeah, well, it was I skipped difficult that. to get through because it was. I mean, he didn't just die. I mean, he was like his muscles destroyed him or something from the inside out. I mean, it yeah. was particularly graphic and nasty, which I think kind of goes into this horror territory because you know he didn't just die, or it wasn't just you know like he collapsed over dead, you know, or anything like no, that. No, it was, it was, it was a pretty uh, it was a pretty unpleasant way to go. And I think it was very interestingly written though because that paragraph, his death. That description is its own paragraph in the story. Mm-hmm. And there's no reaction or anything. It is just a description of, of Mr. Ashimoto dying. The, and then next, the next paragraph, paragraph, we get reaction from Alan. But it, it, it kind of gives it this, you know, at a distance, he's so powerless to do anything, we don't even see his reaction while it's happening. You know, and you could just kind of see him there watching this happen being utterly powerless to do anything about it. Right. I think there's two ways to read into that. One is um, sort of the trite explanation, which is just author style. Mm-hmm. That, the, that um, the author decided to, one paragraph, what's happening to Mr. Ashimoto, next paragraph, person's response to it. The, the other interpretation is, you know, the other way to, to kind of view it is that the person is in sh- such shock, they're just, you know, viewing in, mm-hmm. in kind of like muted, uh, you know, horror at what's happening, but they're not reacting. It doesn't really, it doesn't really hit uh, Alan until, you know, after Mr. Uh, Mr. The end of the paragraph. Mr. Ashimoto is dead, you know, dead uh, in the, you know, did he fall out of the tube or was he still in the tube? I think he fell out, or yeah, that was a little. I think he fell out. So yeah, just Fire. basically staring at the dead body, and then it hits him, and he starts retching and throwing up, and right. has yeah. a really emotional reaction once Mr. Ashimoto is, you know, dead. Yes. Kind of delayed response to it. Which sort of fits the theme, I believe, of the. Well, we had a lot of being caught in limbo and stasis. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had a lot of kind of. I mean, I got a couple comments from people. Um, we had one submitted in from uh, Sam Ronan uh, wrote in, uh, you know, basically saying. Uh, well, you know, since this gas only responds to certain DNA, I mean, there has to be some system for. Uh, you know, since the computer said he could use his brother's tube, there has to be some way to, like, recirculate or move this gas around, and wouldn't there be some way to siphon it off? Or, um, I heard from somebody else saying, like, well, maybe, uh, Alan can, like, you know, use his time alive to record, uh, stories or record messages for his brother and kind of lessons he wants to give them. Uh, so I, I, we got feedback with people like wanting to do something, like wanting to, you know, almost frustration. I think on their part, yes. like wanting to jump in and say, "Oh my God, you could do this," or "What if we do this?" Or you know, doesn't it, it doesn't seem right that this is the way it happened? It's unfair, mm-hmm. and that's that's I think one of the kind of central points of the story is it's really bad unfair. things happen. Bad yeah. things happen to people yeah. who don't deserve it. Yeah, it truly does. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's one of the important lessons, you know. I maybe you know, Alflor is you know saying a life lesson here is that you know sometimes bad things just happen, and there isn't a cause, and there isn't somebody to blame, and there's anything to do about it either. Yeah, and there think, isn't anything to do about it. Reminds me of one of my favorite Kurt Vonnegut quotes, where he says something along the lines of one of his uh, least favorite lies about American literature is this idea that anybody can extricate themselves from some position, uh, some trouble they've gotten into, and it's just so horribly untrue that it makes them want to laugh in frustration. The, the question is, though, I, I suppose, is can you ever live your life under that assumption? 
that there are unwinnable situations. People really don't want to, but is that but not the reality? I mean, is, it, is it healthy to even try to live your life with the assumption that there are no, unwinnable situations? I would say, so, so like, if you look at what people say about people who are in survival situations, like people mm-hmm. situations where their life is in extreme danger, you know, like the number one factor in whether or not you live is your desire to live, your, your survival instinct. Mm-hmm. And right. so if, if you just if you just kind of take the attitude of, oh, oh, you know, nothing I can do, then those are the people who, you know, I, I was reading this story about, you know, these, these people who are running out of the World Trade Center after it got hit, right? Mm-hmm. And so they had to run down like 40, 50 flights of stairs. And a lot of people, you know, made it down the stairs. And then I was reading this one, this one woman who passed one of her coworkers, and he was kind of a big, heavy guy, and he was kind of going slow, and he kind of like resigned himself to not being able to get out in time, and sure enough, he didn't. Mm-hmm. And so it's like it's that survival instinct, the you know that that really keeps you going. And you know if if you want to survive a really bad situation, they say the first thing you have to do is you know you really have to want to live. Yeah. And the but, danger here at the end of the situation is is his survival instinct going to lead him to do something worse than surviving? That's true. You could yeah. go on a rampage. Yeah, well, that, that's your solution but, to everything. <laughs> you, you are both scientific men, right? There's, yes. Th- th- okay, I have a but question for you. you before. Human instinct is not scientific. It's really not. Well, I guess there is. I don't it? think so. But, okay, so this human instinct tells you to always go on and keep surviving. And, but scientifically, you can prove sometimes there's just nothing left you can do. Yeah. Just, I have a question for you, just, just somewhat related. So, you're a Simpsons fan, right? I think Art, everybody no? is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember, like, the really classic, the monorail episode? Yes. Mm, vaguely. Okay. Bart and Homer on the monorail. It's out of control. It's on fire. They're screaming around the town at an incredible speed. And uh, and Homer's like, and, and uh, what was it like? Uh, Homer's like, well, boy, I think we're going to die. And Bart's <laughs> like, yeah, but at least, we'll t- you know, at least we'll take a lot of screaming people with us. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one of the things, yeah, so so there was a lot of frustration on what could he do, and, and I guess, you know, my feeling would be, you know, I'd, I'd keep trying, I guess, if I was him. You know, I'd, I'd keep trying to figure out things to do, and I think I, I, I do like the idea of, you know, at least recording some kind of message or something. Maybe an explanation. Your brother. You know, I'm sorry I killed Mr. Ashimoto. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that guy had to die. You saw the way he looked at me. <laughs> But yeah, you know, recording maybe some kind of message for it. But we don't even get that kind of like little ray of hope like, in the story. Like one knock at it, like, and, and that was tough for people to read. So, no, he, like, I just just to dwell on Mr. Ashimoto's fate for a second. Like, <laughs> he really, I, I guess, one knock at, at Alan is that he really shows no compassion whatsoever for the fact that he just killed a man. See, I think he might, in retrospect. But I think right now he's so much in the moment. Which is, it's the tough thing. He's so in shock, practically, probably. And everybody is so depersonalized, I believe, in yeah. these uh, states of anima- uh, suspended animation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The guy doesn't really, it kind of... Right, he doesn't talk. He's actually referred to, at one point, the, the word, the creature, is used during his death scene. And oh, I think that's, a, you know, text, as my advisor was fond of saying, text is choice. You know, it was chosen for a reason, and I think, you know, that that's, you're right, it dehumanizes, depersonalizes mm-hmm. Mr. Ashimoto, because in this moment, he's a, he's like a dumb animal dying. I mean, he's foaming at the mouth, and there's no kind of person there in his death scene. Mm-hmm. So, no, I'd, I'd agree with you on that. Uh, just out of curiosity, so what other works would you compare this to, like works of science fiction or literature in general? 
Well, I think we've already mentioned a few. Um, it reminded me a little bit of the Doctor Who episode, The Ark in Space, so that, that's, that one's for you, Fuzz. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in terms that you have full of people in cryosleep. But yeah, anything that kind of, I think, really explores kind of these issues of um, isolation and being trapped and, and what do you do. And space stories are very good for that because, you know, even... You know, in the old days, you kind of would do this on a ship. Space is even better because there is no escape from a spaceship that's stuck or in problem because outside is completely inimical in space, to life. In the 3G connection. Right. <laughs> years and years ago, there was a real short-lived show. I may be dating myself. Earth 2. Do you guys remember this show? No, I don't believe that so. Gene Roddenberry? No, no. Didn't he do some... You're, you may be thinking of... Um, what was it like... And he did too. Like besides Star Trek, he did like the that Andromeda Kevin Sorbo show, mm. and uh, he did another one like where Earth and where like aliens come. But but he didn't. This is not the one I'm thinking okay. of. The one I'm thinking of was like a very short lived NBC show um, where these colonists are sent on a spaceship in hypersleep, and en route they're sabotaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. So the colony, you know, gets there, but they're like wrecked. You know, they're like, the, you know, their supplies are lost and everything, and it's them trying to build a colony. So, like, the the, the story itself has, you know, both resembles both the fact that you know that they they were sabotaged while in hypersleep, and the fact that bad things start to happen once they get there. They're isolated and yeah. Mm-hmm. I I liked um I don't know what what do you guys think of the Alan Danny dynamic? Oh, just a. Uh friendly, brotherly dynamic. Like I said, this this story hit me in like a kind of a personal level mm-hmm. uh, because it kind of reminded me of uh, when I was younger, I had a close friend who I had a kind of almost brotherly relationship with because mm-hmm. I didn't actually get along with my real fr- like my real life brothers. Uh-huh. But you uh, do now. Yeah, yeah, now I do. <laughs> so I, but uh, then, but that friend I had when I was younger died. So, I mean, just, mm-hmm. uh, that's, the, it kind of struck me on, on that level. Yeah, it, it. I really liked it. You know, I have a, I have a sister too, and and a younger sister, and it, it rung very true to me. Uh, I suppose I really I really liked the Alan Danny dynamic, and there is that kind of sense that you know they're really. I mean, I would do just about anything for my sister. You know, wouldn't matter what it was. You know, and and this kind of protectiveness um, mm-hmm. that he feels over Danny really rung true. Uh, to me, and it was—I thought it was really cute too. I, mean, I thought yeah. it was very cutely done. And the implication I got from the story was they don't have parents. They don't seem to yeah, have that's, parents. No. That, yeah. That's that's kind of like the they notable by its other. absence yeah. was the fact yeah. that there's no mention of any family or friends they're leaving. Well, and there, there's a reminder. It reminded me of of Ed and Alphonse from Full Metal Alchemist. That, that relationship where you've got these two brothers who no parents and younger, but very close because that's all they have. Um, Right. And it's, that's part of the problem. That's one of the reasons Alan's so upset because Danny doesn't have anyone, and he's going to be what fourteen or fifteen and get to a whole new planet with nobody ages? else. I believe it does at one point. Okay. I thought. Oh, those things slip from my mind too easily. I thought so. I may be wrong, but I get the impression one was kind of like around the college age, getting around mm-hmm. toward there, and right. the other maybe just entering High the teen years, yeah. yeah, something like that. So yeah, he's going to get there with nobody, and there's nobody back on Earth either. So. And, of and I guess by the time he got back to Earth, yeah. And the other thing is, anyway. the, the other thing is the concept of, um, you know, because this is such a long trip. They said like what, one hundred fifty, one hundred seventy-five years or something well, like that. Yeah. The, the idea is, it's kind of like in Stephen King's The Jaunt, 
on the outside, it takes a split second to make this travel, but on the inside, your physical body is experiencing it as the rate of light speed. No, no, but this is on the outside, it's still 150 years. And they said in the beginning of the work that, you know, that is when you, you leave and you get to wherever you're going 150 real years later, and you would experience, you experience in the travel, in real physics, you know, t- time would dilate and, you know, it would, you, it, you would perceive it as being a very small time, but outside mm-hmm. it would be 150 years. Mm-hmm. In the book, it explicitly says that, you know, you experience time passing at a rate equal to the time outside of the ship. The English major had trouble so with can physics. can we say bullshit know. on that? Or huh? as, as a scientist, can we say bullshit yeah, on that? Yeah, that has... Oh, what, you know, what's made, the fun in that? Well, I mean, I mean, you have to give the writer a little leeway to kind of bend physics to... Yeah. So anyway, anyway, but they explicitly say, you know, you leave and you get to where you're going 150 years later. Mm-hmm. And, and you have not... And although you have experienced 150 years passing for you, you've been in sleep and presumably haven't aged. Right. And so you get there 150 years later. And then if, if you're doing a round trip, I guess, you get back and it's 300 years later plus however long you spent there. And so everyone you knew was dead and... Everything you know, all the technology you knew, you know, all the all your favorite you know writers and musicians—they're all gone. Mm-hmm. I maybe, like your so, idea from the Stephen King book, though, that it's instantaneous for the outside. Oh yes, because what happens in, in the story is uh, there's a gas that is supposed to be inhaled to send you into suspended sleep, mm-hmm. and uh, like some kid in a family just holds his breath and doesn't uh, take yeah. it. And then when they get on the other side, he's all hairied and crazy because oh, he's experienced an endless amount of time alone. No. Again, isolated. Yeah, isolated. Um, I, I guess that's you know. May, so maybe it's not hard sci-fi because of that. But I don't know. I'm I'm usually willing. I'm not like a hard sci-fi purist where it has to be you know as absolutely a scientific. Yeah, you have, you have to give the writers some some slack. Yeah, to, I'm I'm, all, I'm willing to um, stretch there, believability. Yeah, there's if it's no a need good to be story. pedantic. Yeah, I guess I could never really, like what motivates the people going on these round trip. Uh, you know, if you were given the chance to go. To some other star, some colony somewhere, and then come back, and each each leg of the trip would take 150 years, and when you come back, you're essentially unstuck in time. Like everything, you're Fry from Futurama. Mm-hmm. Economic <laughs> development, maybe. <laughs> well, that's I don't know. That leads me to think maybe we did mishear it because he specifically talks about it's wealthy people going. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not like homesteaders. Well, it's it's not like th- this has appeared in fiction I imagine elsewhere. Them going as wealthy investors to a new outside colony. It, do, do you remember? Kind of, what, the impression I get here is that Earth is not as important to stick around as it was before. Right, it doesn't right. matter if all the people on Earth and are going to die. For, for Alan Danny, remember. it's probably just you know they, it's it's a new chance. Yeah, you know, they as, as we know, their parents are dead. We don't know why, but it looks like they probably you know, and they're young. They don't have anything to hold them back. So why not take it in their perspective? It's it actually would not be the first case of that I can remember in fiction. Did you ever read? Uh, any of the sequels to Ender's Game. Mm-hmm. Yep. So in the book, um, one of the sequels. I'm sorry, right now it's 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 uh, Children of the Mind. I think one of the later, like third or fourth sequel. Mm-hmm. They talk about this, you know, major corporation where all the members of the board are on these ships traveling at relativistic velocity, and they're essentially unstuck in time. Yeah. And so they, so they control the corporation over thousands of years because they're living for you know essentially yeah. forever, and <laughs> they're and the they're dead. almost by definition rich because they're running this big important corporation. Yeah. Speaker of the Dead, by the way, is, is, should be like required reading for anybody interested in the social sciences. That's that's a very good one. So, the second book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm take that recommendation. Expand my sci-fi library. Yes, that's <laughs> a good one. No, that's. I mean, I think Ender's Game is great. It's great when you're but 15. But it's a straightforward but... story. Speaker for the Dead is really deep. I think, and it's probably. It, I mean, it, it's 
one of the best sci-fi books ever written. I don't think he ever gets there again in terms of quality, uh, honestly. I, I, so I, I got through like the first eight, and yeah. then um, I, I had number nine sitting on number. So he does like four with Ender, and then four with Bean, right. and then he started a new quartet. I think it's supposed to be a quartet mm-hmm. where he brings the two together mm-hmm. in like in the distant future. Yeah. So so essentially, it's well, it's, actually, it's, it's not Ender. Ender is essentially killed off at the end of four, and there's new Peter mm-hmm. who is Bean's whatever yeah. spirit soul yeah. uh and so he's bringing new peter and and, and just uh like i've never actually read nine notice my... how even the description got sillier as we went on <laughs> so that, that, that should tell you something um but yeah i i don't know i, I don't think I, I love orson scott Card, but i think that was kind of the pinnacle and i don't everything else since then i don't know if he's even you know necessarily trying to do something like that i think he's just kind of writing <laughs> I think he's milking it no i mean i think maybe he's doing that but i think he's just kind of writing you know easier stuff to write and not that there's anything wrong with that but you're not going to hit the same heights uh so anyway yeah speaker for the dead great ender's game great other ones pretty good some of them maybe not that's our summary it's his, politics. <laughs> his politics terrible his yeah, politics, politics are very terrible yeah <laughs> Um, oh, there's there's an article out there like Orson Scott. It's like a, a, a reporter wrote it about her interview with Orson Scott Card, and she's like Orson Scott Card. You know, my best inter- You know, my the best subject to interview. My worst interview ever. <laughs> it's like, um, have we covered almost? Is there anything we've forgotten? No, I don't believe so. Uh, we don't want to forget the thank you again. Yes, we haven't said thank you enough times to Al Floor for yes. letting us use the story. Thank you. And very enjoyable. Uh, we got some lighter stuff for next time. Uh, next week. Yes, so. we'll have a, a story by Cedric. Yeah, and, and we'll have a stranger reading that for us. So. Oh, yeah. Somebody you've never heard <laughs> a of. A surprise guest reader. Um, and, and so, yeah, we'll do some lighter stuff. And uh, down the pipeline, we've got uh, we've got several things coming. We're going to have a Kyle Gold story coming up. In the future, we're going to have uh, something from Roar 3 coming up, and we've got some straight porn coming up down the road, too. So is that a promise? Oh, that is no. a promise. That is a promise. And I still oh, got to read, you know, pick a Pokemon winner. So we've got some good things coming down the pipeline. Stay tuned. Uh, Jay, thank you for being our guest. Thank you. Thank you very yes, much for having me on. Having me on. It's, yeah. it's been a pleasure. Yeah. If, if you guys are in the D.C. area, you know, give us a ring. Maybe you could be a d- guest commentator, too. Uh, and we always need guest readers, uh, and so drop me an email, skip at baddogbooks.com. I handle all the reading assignments. Yeah, and you can catch me at tunes at drivingcat.org. Yeah, and if you, yeah, story submissions, probably go to tunes first, but they could go to either of us or both of us. So if you have a story you'd like to share and like to have it read on the air, please send it our way. Um, and visit us yes, at baddogbooks.com. And I think that's about it. Uh, so join us next week. All right. But thank you. I'm Skip. I'm Tunes. It's nice talking to you, everybody. And I'm Jay. 